for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect. Any booking, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. Visit them at BookingProtect.com to find out how your organization can offer your guests a better buying experience, more peace of mind, and how you can create a new revenue stream for your organization. Again, that's at BookingProtect.com. Now, my guest today is going to, it's a fun one. Uh, it's my friend Ian Taylor from Big Dog. And Ian is a, somebody who I hang out with, have some G&Ts with when I'm in the UK. Um, and it's a really cool conversation because Ian brings up a really important point that I was unaware of about the podcast and about some of the stuff that I have been focusing on and working on, which was the way that us as Americans, or and me in particular, uh, and, but just all Americans in his view, lead with too much sales to the point that we neglect marketing. And it was really interesting because they let open up a very interesting conversation around marketing and sales and how one lead drives the other one. Um, we also talk about um, you know the difference in tone between the UK and the US. We talk about the need for um, branding and brand awareness, expe- setting expectations, challenges, pain points, um, empathy. We talked about how to be a better and more effective email marketer. We talked about pricing. We talked about how to know your customers. Um, we talked about solving problems. I mean, we got into a, a lot of stuff, but really the most interesting thing to me was the part about um, leading with marketing over leading with selling. Um, but I think there's just a lot here that you can learn from on this episode of The Business of Fun with Ian Taylor. I want to welcome Ian Taylor to The Business of Fun podcast. Ian, how's it going? Okay, Dave. How are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm doing great. Uh, I should let everybody know on the at the outset, I learned something interesting about you today before we started recording, which is that you are a huge New England Patriots fan, which I had no idea that you were such a big football well, fan. Yeah, no, no haters, no haters. <laughs> Listen, I know, I know, I know Deep Gate and, and Brady, you know, there's a lot of uh, polarizing opinions out there, but, you know, you've got to go with the Gronk spike. Yeah. Be done. Well, I'll make sure I tag you in the uh, when I release the podcast. That way, people can like throw all the hate at you that they want to. <laughs> be great. You Good. can get hate Let's coming get from both. Let's get it out of the way at the top of the episode. Both, yeah. both sides Good. of the both sides of the ocean. You'll be able to get hate from. It'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to start out with something that's pretty interesting, which I know we have discussed before, right? Which is like sort of. Um, the difference in the way tickets are sold in the U.S. versus the U.K. And you have made an interesting observation, um, which I never put in this context before, but which makes all the sense in the world to me because it really is sort of mirrors my philosophy, right? Which is like the tone of the sales between the U.S. and the U.K. And how the big thing is, is that in the U.S., everything seems to be sales driven and marketing takes a back seat versus the U.K. where the focus is on the on sale, and then you market the crap out of things, and then you convert the demand you've generated into sales. Um, can you start out there and give me like a little bit of like your take from coming from the UK, and you know, sort of you know how you see both both sides of that market um, developing? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting thing because I 
see i was listening to your, your last episode and, and your guest was talking about you know sales teams and reaching out and you know a lot of that is from a sports background which you know i'm primarily from live entertainment family events arena shows theater um and it's, it's interesting that a lot of the tone of yourself and other podcasts and other of thought pieces are talking about sales and reaching out and calling customers and calling previous ticket buyers I just I, I just thought that was an odd difference because for us in the UK we might do that for groups you know a group specialist company may do active campaigns where they're reaching out to getting you know get group bookers um, tour operators whoever interested in your event but on an individual basis we we, we kind of never do that um, you know, I come from a originally come from a box office background um, and box office would respond to marketing activities that were done to promote the event. So we would sit there and we wouldn't be proactively reaching out to customers. We'd be waiting for those customers to reach out to us, us to call us because this is before the Internet. Yes, I'm that old um, to, 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 to come in and, and, and book the tickets either in person or over the phone or, you know, Back, I'm going back a few years now. Actually, writing in and, and posting checks, um, but it, it's just—it just seems interesting to me that, especially in, in US sports, I'm not sure how much of it is done in live entertainment. That the whole focus seems to be on 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 actually reaching out. It's very much that Glen Gary, Glen Ross kind of sales, 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 making your targets, making your deadlines, and. For me, that's a little bit at odds with how I work in in ticketing and how I, you know, the a lot of the business that I've worked in in the UK works. We'd never do that. We'd never consider doing that. Well, that's what is interesting too. It it's it's funny that you have observed that I spend a lot of time on sales in the podcast because I think that it probably comes as well. It comes that comes as a little surprise to me because most of the time. That's the point of view you're talking about is one that you know I advocate for because I'm like there's you can't cold call enough to fill a thirty thousand seat arena right I mean consistently um, you you need that demand generation to help you make those sales right help you generate demand help you convert and it, you know having you on is interesting because one of the big cha- one of the big things that goes on here is so much of the reliance on the secondary market to drive that demand and kind of convert those uh, digital sales, right? Which is basically the role that most of the primary side uh, ticket sellers in the UK provide, you know, and that's a huge difference uh, between the two markets. It's really interesting when you explain it like that, because I don't know all the time if the Americans necessarily understand what really goes on in the in the in the UK market or just in the rest of the world period but one of the big differences is that is like there's much more heavy reliance on marketing than sales yeah i mean it's listen in the in the US uh, so let's let's talk about a live entertainment show for example you've got pretty much one channel that people can buy through so it's it's ticketmaster yeah or live nation so they they your dominant player in the US. Um, in the UK, we'll have multiple ticket partners that we can work with. Um, we, you know, the venue or the promoter may have an agreement for a primary partner, so that could be Ticketmaster, it could be one of the one of the competitors. But we won't just sell through that channel. Uh, for 
for for me that would feel restrictive because we're used to working with multiple partners as part of the the primary market to get a the distribution and b the marketing effort because working with an extra primary partner and selling through six to eight channels as opposed to one maybe two gives you access to marketing collateral that you're actually not paying for it's not coming out of your budget where it comes from is obviously you've got to create the assets for them to be able to work with and it's time it's networking it's ringing up negotiating deals negotiating placement being aware that a lot of these primary ticket sellers are asked to give homepage prominence to 12 different events at the same time that they're giving you prominence probably more so i guess in a way from the point of view of, of what i do as part of a, a marketing agency you know with a with a ticketing and sales focus i i'm the one who's doing that you know i i'm working with our partners and and getting them to push our, our product to their audience um if it, you know i hate to sort of draw the parallel between you know a live entertainment emotive thing people are fans of and a product but ultimately that's what it is we are selling a product be it a live experience or be it a sport event music gig a family show whatever it may be to a consumer um what you do around that in terms of building your brand building your tone doing your pricing and actually knowing who it is you're selling that to that's a whole other bag of tricks um and i say bag of tricks because it, it is very feels very much like alchemy at times uh, I don't believe there's one accurate formula for doing it. Have you found one? I have not, but you bring the way you described it. It really is, at least to me, it's informative, and I hopefully it'll be informative to people that listen to it. Because I think here's a bigger, a big difference also between. I mean, there's a lot of big differences, right, between uh, the U.S. And, and the rest of the world. But one of the big things that you highlighted was that there's no one size fits all marketing solution, and one of the things that gets offered up a lot and in, in as soon as I say this statement, my inbox is going to be um, filled up with people saying, oh, well, you just don't understand, which is always the key to I must have nailed it, right? As soon <laughs> as somebody tells me I don't understand, that's when I know I've nailed it. Um, is that so much of, of what the marketing and advertising that is done to support these events, right? In the cases when it's done, is cookie cutter, is one size fits all, is a copycat thing. And for you to say it's like alchemy and that, you know, there isn't one solution, that you have all these different diverse tools and tactics and ideas that you have to kind of figure out the magic mix for each product and event. You know, that's refreshing to me because that's really my point of view. Um, you know, and it's nice to hear from you because I know that one of the big keys and one of the big things that drives the success of what you do is the ability to understand your audience and to develop a tone of the communication built around pricing and value and rewards and the expectations that you create um, for the ticket buyer in their experience that helps make you successful. And, and, and again, it's like magic a little bit. There's it's as much a science or art as it is a science. So, oh, yeah, go, yeah, go right ahead. I was going to well, ask no. you to elaborate. <laughs> Well, the, the, the most interesting parallel I can draw on one size thing and, yeah, uh, is, is with a car. So effectively, a car does the same thing, whatever, whatever it is you, you drive, be it a Porsche, be it a, a Mini, or whatever, whatever lies in between, a Wrangler or whatever. So you've got an engine, you've got a steering wheel, 
you've got a seat, you've got headlights, you might have a radio. Um, but how you put those things together and what you do with them determines the vehicle, how it looks, how it's appreciated, how it's sold. So, But effectively, it's exactly the same thing. So using that metaphor to apply it to what we do in marketing a live event and, you know, an experience, you have to approach it. And you know you've got all those tools, but you're going to put them together in an entirely different way for each campaign. And for us and our focus has always been that we start with the, with with you've got two places to start with you've got the, the the brand or whatever it is that you you happen to be selling if it's a known event if it's a branded piece so if, you know, i'm lucky enough to work on disney on ice for example so you've instantly got brand awareness through the roof and a customer expectation of what that will be for their family but on the other hand you've got what customers are expecting from that, what their perceptions are, uh, what their challenges are. You know, they've got to think about wrangling a family of very young children out to a venue. They've got to, you've got to think about all the all the pressure points that they have with that, um, and just try and you know make what we're doing kind of fit with them a little bit. Uh, you have to cater to an audience's needs, and you have to start thinking about that in in the way that you talk to them, in the way that you communicate, how you communicate with them. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of what we do um, for the tours that we work on in the UK is email-based communications, and it's very, very successful uh, for us. We get a lot of engagement from it. We see a lot of ticket sales from it that we can directly, directly attribute to that email campaign that we do. Um, and we did something different on the last tour, which was a kind of a no-brainer in hindsight always being 2020. We simply moved the email back 24 hours. So rather than the email going out at 9 a.m. on the day that the tickets were released at 9 a.m., you've got customers who are wanting to book tickets from 9 a.m. who are scurrying, queued up, invested, ready to go because they want little Timmy and Tabitha to get the front row seats to see Mickey and Minnie on the ice. But they're still waiting for their email to drop. 901, 902, now they're panicking. They're thinking, all oh, those seats are gone. I'm going to miss out. And so they they go to customer services, whatever channel it is. And these days, of course, it's social. So they're on social saying, it's 915, I haven't had my email. Of course, it you know if you're, you're sending out huge volumes of emails, it takes time to pulse that out. It also could go into their spam box. Or, you know, it could not arrive for a million of other reasons. So you've, what we did is we moved it earlier. We removed that issue of the customer waiting for their link to be able to get tickets and their code to be able to get tickets 24 hours earlier. So it was all landed. It was all there. They could plan. They could see what they needed to do. And then on the 9 a.m. on the day of on all they've got to focus on is getting the tickets that they want. And it was just, it was such a simple tweak that was based on listening to the audience feedback that we had, doing some surveys, listening to social media, watching where those pressure points were on sales. And it just, it just worked for me. Um, sounds like a small thing, but it made a big difference to us and it made a huge, huge difference on return um, on investment. So yeah, what I'm basically saying, you just have to listen. You have to know who your customers are, where they are what they want but where they're seeing the frustrations in actually yeah they're invested 
tested, they, you know they want to buy. But inadvertently, you might be putting hurdles in the way of their buying. So you've got to look at where they may be and just move them, just move the pieces around. Yeah, no, this is, this is really interesting because this is one of um, one of the challenges that I think a lot of organizations in the states deal with is that everybody loves data, right? And everybody wants to talk about big data and they throw these things around. And I know they get data. I know also that a lot of t- organizations and aren't using it effectively. Um, so that when we're talking about understanding and knowing our customer, um, you know, people pay lip service to it, but they don't necessarily actually ever take action on it. And so I'm curious, and this is as much for me as it is for anybody that's listening, is, you know, how do you make sure that you do know your customer? Like, you know, is there like a sort of framework that you operate through or is it just sort of an accumulation of data points that come up over the course of time? Or is it like, again, like everything else, a little bit of everything? I think you need to be open to the signals that customers put out and that's something that we we kind of believe as an agents that, that work across multiple sectors not just live entertainment um we're lucky enough that for for the live entertainment clients that we work with we um we manage and moderate their, their social so we see firsthand a lot of what customers are saying a lot of how they react to things when there's news a lot of how they engage um the interesting thing about all live events these days, and I've seen it play out a couple of times in in recent weeks, actually, is social media tells you immediately if you've got it wrong, especially with your pricing. Um, and it's 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 as frustrating as 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 people can be on social media. It's such a valuable listening tool to hear what people are saying about you. It's the quickest and most immediate way that anyone can engage with a brand. And customers expect that brand to respond so much more quickly these days. The, 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 the tolerance for latency, I guess, and delay in a brand responding to a customer's feedback has dropped massively. And, and consumers expect to hear back in some way as quickly as they can. Um, so I, I think that's one of the, the first things we do is we, we listen. Um, we've got older tech, I mean, we, we run surveys, we do focus groups. Um, and we do, uh, we do a number of research pieces while we're exploring artwork for a new event that's going out just to, just to judge tone and what people perceive of it. And we're fortunate enough to have a client that, that believes in all that and invests in it, but, the client or the promoter has got to want to do that. You can't just put it on sale and let the chips fall where they may. So I think, I think it, if you have that investment from the the artist, the promoter, uh, crossing over sports, the team, if you like, if they want to actually do that understanding, the signals are there. You've just got to know where to listen and where to look. And you've also got to ask the right questions and not be afraid of getting answers you might not want to hear if you're going to do that listening if you're going to do that study if you're going to do that survey you've got to be prepared to get negative feedback and to break things and remake them if the customer's giving you feedback and telling you that's not working for us but if you did it like this then we can talk so that i guess if that answers your question no it definitely does and it it, it 
it brings back a word that I underlined on my notes here as we've been doing this over and over again. It's empathy. And I have hmm. done a podcast that will be getting posted. Um, it might be, it might even come out before yours does with a guy called Peter Shankman. And he talks like pretty much the whole podcast is like in a, a dose of adrenaline right to the heart about empathy and, you know, making sure that like you're empathetic for what the customer is. And I know that for me, you know, the customer is always at the center of everything that I focus on, right? Because again, I believe in that old rule that the only, go- the, the really the big goal of a business is to create and keep a customer. And I think mm. that all the stuff you talked about, about knowing your customer, which is listening, um, you know, surveying them, focusing on them, um, you know, it's very important to having that empathy because if you don't understand how your customer perceives what you're trying to sell them, how can you really effectively sell to them? I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's it's baffling to me, and I know it happens here because I, I, mean, I see the efforts. I, you know, I see the see the plans that work and the plans that don't work. Um, you know, it's just baffling to me, and it, you know, it, and it's like one of the it, again, it's a big difference between the states and the rest of the world is the em- emphasis on empathy. Um, you know, and and I think that like plays out in all those decisions that you guys make because. I know that like you spend also a great deal of time focusing on making sure you're pricing things the correct way. Um, you know, and that to me, pricing is an empathetic decision as much as it is a uh, revenue maximizing decision. And I'm kind of curious about how your, you know, your philosophy and the way you guys handle pricing, because in the States, there is a philosophy that has taken hold, especially on um, a lot on the sports side, as much as uh, any of the live entertainment or theater side. But that, like, we have to maximize the revenue at every touch point. And what I've seen, and what is playing out in many venues around the country, is that this emphasis on maximizing revenue is having the entirely opposite effect. It's turning people away, and it's making it uh, less palatable for people to go out and experience a live event. You know, and how do you feel about, you know, how do you approach this? Well, um, I think the interesting thing is that live ticketing is one of those really strange industries, especially here in the UK. I'll give you an example. If you buy a ticket for a live event in the UK, you are, are you have that transparency of what was paid and where the fees sit and and how that works and the customer can see that but if you go to a restaurant or if you stay in a hotel they're not required to tell you what their costs are and what their sale price are so it, it, it straight away you've got you've got um, a product if you like that's a much more emotive thing so so, yeah rather than a getting from a to b or a place to stay overnight you've got a product that people you know feel much more about and then you have the fact that you you have this absolute transparency over pricing which kind of puts you a disadvantage i was listening to your last podcast and one of the one of the interesting things i jotted down was you know customers who are next to each other and have paid different prices to, to see that event and and and, the, and you know, I, I've jotted down why is this a problem? Because if you're on a train or a plane, chances are you'll have paid hundreds of dollars or pounds difference to the person in the seat next to you, or the seat behind you, or the seat in front. So it's only when you move into the 
the the live entertainment space and 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 possibly the sports place where there there is that emotional connection where that becomes something that i don't know maybe we focus on a bit unfairly is it a phantom menace customers are pragmatic enough to know that you know people can buy different things at different prices and they can be of the same um quality and in similar locations um i think customers are also pragmatic enough to know that not everything can be full um you you were talking about you know whether whether things sell out and whether empty seats is, is a bad thing um I, I guess it depends on your point of view it seems to me that that, that a lot of a, a lot of thought is given to if you've got empty seats it, it must be a bad thing you must be failing and i can understand that if you're trying to sell 30 40,000 seats day in day out for for long seasons of sports events or or shows but uh, it's not always the case that that not selling all your inventory is terrible um i've kind of wandered off on my mental journey here dave um so i'm gonna i'm gonna pull back slightly to to, to the pricing um it's interesting um looking at the perception of daily deals sites it's another note i made from your last podcast um you know, your Groupons, your, your your travel zoos of this world. Um, I'm fortunate enough in that I have a client that supports us not working with them in any way, shape, size or form. Because as soon as you make that association with them, I believe, and I've seen it happen, I think you, you do devalue your brand. Um, I also strongly believe that, that those days, daily deal brands feed from our industry as they do a lot of other types of products and a lot of other industries and they don't put back in they're not part of the ecosystem of, of selling a live experience be it sports or be it live entertainment um, interestingly i know um, a lot of events in the us engage with uh, daily deals brands because um, that's a way of them getting the distribution because of the, the the primary nature of of the market and there only being one two if you're lucky primary channels to go which which is of course isn't isn't the case in the uk so there there is that difference in perception i think once you do associate yourself with with a deal brand then you de- devalue your your whole event and i think that does have an effect on your pricing well um, you've obviously um you've been paying attention to uh, to me, but I know that because we talk regularly. So, but about the, the, the thing about <laughs> devaluing the brand, right? That's like the big key, you know, and you were asking about why is it a problem to pay different prices at things? And I don't think it's necessarily a big problem on the surface because like you said, people understand that like um, you can pay different thing, different things for different products or services at different times, right? I think the problem becomes, at least here in the States, is because there's such a, you know, the, the system for distribution in a lot of cases is closed, right? Like, so you go to Ticketmaster yeah. or, or nowhere, right? So then that makes, you know, that increases the, um, the need to go to like a, a travel zoo or a Groupon or any of those sites. It also, inc- it makes it a necessity and imperative that you work with the secondary market, right? And so then all of the, all of the time you're, you're, you want people to spend their money early. You want them to commit to buying through you. You want them to come to you. You want them, you know, you want to learn about the customer. You want to do all those positive things. Yet the incentives are all lined up to make you wait right? because 
you panic because you only have one source. Of, you know, if Ticketmaster is not effective at driving demand for your event, and you're you know you're kind of limited in the tools that you have to distribute your tickets and get the you know get your sales opportunities out there. All of a sudden, then you start discounting, and like you said. I go to Groupon, I start discounting, all of a sudden my brand is devalued. And I've now trained my customer to wait because there's always going to be exactly. a better deal. Exactly. We're an industry that's trained people to wait for the deal. Um, and it, it's crazy because when you if, – if I'm going to again draw that parallel between um, uh, hotels and travel, you know, in this country at least, everyone knows that the earlier you book your train ticket, the, the cheaper it will be. If you leave it till the day before or the day of, it's going to cost you top whack. You flip that and it's, it's exactly the opposite for many West End shows, for example. Um, and it's, 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 it's kind of a, a, a legacy that, that few events properly try and tackle. Um, we, again, I'm fortunate to, to work with a brand that generally doesn't discount. Um, and, and and understand that, that you know, it's a long game. You know, Disney's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and we reward people for being that first person to book. You know, for 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 booking early. And and that's that's the reward that they get. And that is that that is the carrot and stick to us having their data and being able to to to, to know who they are, how they respond to our comms and get that email and be the first to get that email and get, and get access to those seats we give them a slight discount in return for, for 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 us telling them all that they've told us about them so um but 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 the whole you know if you go if you come to you know new, if you go to new york or london and actually people, let me let, before you continue let me jump yeah. in on this because you said a slight discount and i would push back on this because then as soon as like we open the door to discounts, people will go crazy with discounts, right? We know this, right? This is just human nature. What you are offering them is not a discount as much as an, as, as, as an incentive to, sure. to build a relationship with them, which is different, sure. right? Because you go, hey, like, look, yeah. I'm going to give you first access to these things and they're, this is the cheapest price you're going to see and then you back that up. So it's not a discount because you're just saying like, look, you have a relationship with me. I value that relationship. I'm going to reward you. That to me, that's just increasing the perception of value of coming to you and having the relationship as opposed to a discount. Um, you know, and I want to be yeah, very yeah, clear course, about this because, again, as soon as I say discount, people are going to be like, "Well, you tell us never to have di- never to discount," and I, and it's true. I, I, I there's always better ways I think to do things than to discount because again, open the door to discount. In people's mind, their perception of you is destroyed for seven years. It's neuroscience, yeah. right? It, it, people yeah. say they love the discount, but they hate you, and they're waiting for you to discount again. All you got to do is look at retail, right? All the retailers, J. Crew, The Gap, any of them, they have they they're they're stuck in this cycle of discounting. And what you offer is an incentive. You increase the percept the perceived value. Which is an entirely different conversation, and uh, and if I'm beating the dead horse here, it's one that's very important for people to understand. Oh, absolutely. So that was my, that was my mistake. I used, the, I used the wrong word to describe to never, describe what we do. Never say but, positive um, things about discounts on this podcast. This will get you whacked. <laughs> consider myself duly smacked. Um, but uh, listen, I, I, I get it. You know, I was about to go on to say that you know, in in London and New York, there are shows that exist year in year out in that discount field 
and they vary at different times of the year depending on different strategies and you know that their entire model strategy is based around the fact that they've been in market for a long time they've got day in day out product to sell and they 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 discount at varying levels to different corners of the market and they do that in rather unique circumstances because broadway and, and london possibly vegas a destination cities so you can go there and you know you want to see a show you're not beholden to seeing any one particular show chances are you just want the experience of seeing a broadway show so you get there and what do you do you go to tkts and you see what's available on the day who might have distressed inventory it might be you might be making it available at a discount and people are, people expect that people are trained to do it you know, is, I'm not saying there's massively anything wrong on that. I've worked on West End shows that have, have lived year in, year out using that as one of their distribution levels. So, you know, there are there are ways if you've got an always on live entertainment product of tailoring it to different levels of the market. You know, you might not be doing that all the time. You might only be doing those. TKTS rates certain days of the week or certain times of the year and there are other times of the year where you could sell it out three times over at full price and then some so I'm not saying that there isn't a place in a, in a long term strategy for offering those incentives, those rewards and dare I say it again without risk of a slap, discounts but you, you, you can't I don't believe that you can do them in isolation, I don't believe that you can do them without planning and I don't believe you can do them without knowing exactly how they fit into your long-term strategy if you're just in the market for a week burn brightly then out that's a different thing but most people you know they want to come back to market they want to tour another show they want to build that brand they want to build that engagement with their audience and if you go out first time and you you discount it everywhere and you use daily deal sites chances are that audience isn't going to let you come back in at a price that's going to be worth your while financially put the event on in the first place right and i think you you bring up another uh, important distinction right it, it, if you do do things like tkts or some of these other you know things that either are discounts or have the perception of being discounts it does have to be part of a, a larger strategy like i know that chicago at the ambassador theater in new york there they do that right the phantom of the opera has been going on for 50 years or whatever uh, you know yeah. in new york and again those are part that's part of their philo- their philosophy in the same t- at the same point too those things are very limited right and they're limited in their scope and yep. like if you still want that premium experience that's still available to you right and you know oh, you can, yeah yeah and and i think one of the big challenges comes again if you we, we circle it back to the why is the problem of people paying different prices um a, a challenge is because if you have spent money on this premium experience and you're sitting next to a guy who got a huge deep discount on basically the same experience, that's the challenge because you've made a promise, a brand promise, that the only people who are going to get access to these things are people like me. So the story I'm telling myself is that I am a premium, the kind of person that buys a premium product, a premium service, a premium whatever. And you've broken that brand promise to me. And that's where the problem comes in, right? So that's where the difference is. is you know, it's 
if we in the states, and I know it, it played out just as likely in the UK, was like Taylor Swift, right, and her use of verified fan. And, you know, she made all these promises and Ticketmaster made all these promises that they then broke to all these fans. They were like, oh, you know, you're going to get the best access to the best tickets, the best price, you know, at these best prices because you have gotten all these boosts like through buying merchandise and buying downloads to the album and being part of a fan club and da, 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 all these different things. And then they broke that promise. And that made and that destroyed her brand value to her customers. And again, if you're listening on social media, you saw it like going nuts, right? People can say whatever they want to, but I looked, I was social listening as the term would be, and I saw that people were furious. I and I got tons of emails about it too because people would somehow find me as like a consumer advocate. And I think to me, that's what encapsulates the the big problem of people paying different prices at different things. There has to be some sort of level of uh, sacredness between the the venue and the customer, between the show and the customer, or um, you know, there's no value because I think we both agree that the you know the the big thing is we have to create and keep these customers because if we we burn through them, then we're screwed because it's not like there's an infinite number of of consumers. You know, cons- customers are a finite thing, and if you know, gaining them and keeping them is really expensive. Oh, absolutely! Listen, I, I think I think if you're sitting in the front row and you've paid thirty dollars as opposed to three hundred dollars, yeah, you've got a problem. If you're sitting kind of you know in the upper bowl and you've got the same situation, then uh, I guess I guess to my mind, it's what extra have they bought along with that ticket? So what what else have they been promised? What have they been given? How have you engaged with them? What what is what is your brand promise to them? You know what's because it's not just about the seat they're sat; it's about the whole experience. It's about everything that goes with that. So if you're um, if you're in the if you're in the you know first two rows and you've been sold something that means that you get access to those first and you get um you know you can go in a little bit early you've got access to a vip bar you've got merchandise you know whatever it may be and you've paid three hundred dollars for that and then the person next to you has paid fifty dollars but get none of that stuff that's an interesting question because if i paid fifty dollars and i was aware of how much extra i could have got then i'd be like well yeah if i'd wanted to pay that extra then I could have got all that extra stuff. As it is, I just want to sit here and watch the gig, and I've paid fifty dollars for that. So I, I guess I can see it from both angles. Um, but you're right; you you have to do it in the right way, and you have to make that difference clear in terms of the offer value and what you actually get. Because um, if you don't, then then you've got a problem. So you know, if I go back to my, um, if you're on a plane or a train, and I was in first class. And some, you know, and and you know, getting the hot towels and the massage or whatever it is you get on these long haul flights these days, because um, I never turn left on a plane, Dave. Um, <laughs> you, you, you know. Are you saying that because you know I always turn? Left. <laughs> hey, listen, if I if I was to turn left on a plane, I'd be, but listen, if I was able to turn left on a plane, and you know, and I and I and I and I don't know. It's, it's, you've got to communicate it right and you've got to make that offering um, 
to your customer and they've, they've got to know what the value is and i think you're right you know i i, I don't i didn't look deep into what Ticketmaster were doing with the taylor swift and verified fan thing because i wouldn't probably be able to tell you what the taylor song sounds like that's just that's just on me i didn't pay a, a lot of attention to it but you know i i can kind of see how that was sold in to a promoter as a service and i kind of get what the benefits would have been but i think I agree the execution of it was was wasn't good. Will it go away or will they keep doing it and will they learn from it? I think it will probably be the latter and I'm hoping that the feedback is taken on board and you know if Ticketmaster or whoever continues to run such such schemes then um all power to them but they've got to get it right. And I think you bring up the the interesting thing too, which is like sort of how we've been doing a dance around it the whole time, which is the perception of value, right? And the, and really, if we're selling an experience, which is what we are, anybody who's listening to it or anybody who is, um, you know, involved in this is we're selling an experience, right? And it doesn't matter if it's something like you've been talking about with Disney on ice or we're talking Taylor Swift or we're talking uh, as I'm the new England Patriots game, which you don't know the outcome in advance, you know, to plug your NFL team or like, I love to go see Pearl jam. And I know they're pretty much going to play um, certain songs, but I don't know what other songs they're going to add in, you know, so you t- entirely unique experience. We have to continue to maintain that perception of value. Because these are one of a kind things, no matter what, right? Like Disney on Ice is extremely scripted to the minute, right? I, I know this because I mean, I you know I've been around the theater and live events for most of my life, right? At this point, but still, there's never going to be this group of people in the same building at the same time together watching the same show together. So it's entirely unique. Right, because the crowd influences things as much as possible. The anything could happen in a live event, right? We just never know, and, and we have to maintain that perception of value. And I think what the pricing and the way you sell and the way you communicate to your customers, um, you know, all of these decisions play into or detract from that perception of value. And you know, and I, and I think that's like a really important thing for people to keep in mind because that's sort of what we have been discussing this whole time is about making sure that the perception of value has a little bit of integrity, and that every step we take works to enhance that perception of value and doesn't detract from it. Yeah, it all comes back to delivering on your promise. So whatever we've done in the way that we've spoken to people, in the way that we've marketed to them, in the way that we've engaged with them you know, whatever your tone is, you, you're, you're making a promise. You're saying if you buy into this, if you spend time coming to see us and, 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 and bringing your family here and coming to see this event, we will promise you that you will have a good time and it will be an experience worth going to. You, ultimately, all of this boils down to the fact that if you break that promise, if you break that expectation, that's where you get the negative feedback. That's where you get the negative perception. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, that's exactly right. You get you if you aren't very careful about keeping your promises. You, it's so so easy to destroy your connection with your customers. And I can I know this for certain is that if you destroy that trust, you likely don't get it back, right? And you know people will point to examples that are irrelevant, right? Like they'll go well. You know, if United's Airlines is you know treats their customers like crap, then um, 
you know, I still have to use a United Airlines. And I go, well, that only works until there's a competitor who is um, yeah, comparable or better than United, right? And what we're talking about in live experiences and entertainment is the fact that, like, hey, if Disney on Ice upsets me, there's no limit to the amount of stuff I can do in London, right? I'm not going back to Disney on Ice. I mean, forget those guys, right? The same thing with, like, Taylor Swift. There's no no, there's no limit of people, like places that want my money. Right. So I don't need to do, you know, to do that. And that's, you know, this is one of the reasons that I always highlight what the bank, what Pearl Jam does is because they have for 25 plus years, they've made a promise to their fans and their customers and they've kept that right. They, you know, they over and over and over again. And I know that it's difficult. Right. And the same with Disney, right. Disney makes a promise. They keep it. It's difficult, but it's the only way forward if you're trying to be sustainable, if you're trying to have a long-term go at it, right? If you're just trying to like squeeze a penny out of somebody today, then there's any number of nefarious tricks you can take, you know, use and take. But you have to realize that the long-term customer value just isn't going to be there, and that long-term relationship is not going to be there. Exactly, exactly. Now, the one thing that could probably bring you back to both of those things, Dave, Taylor Swift on ice. Come on. Let's do it. Let's do it. We would, especially if she brought Ryan Adams with her um, so that he would, they could cover the 1989 <laughs> album, like sort of like as a, a mashup. Then I would, I would be in and I would be, pay whatever cost it took to be first row. It would be so awesome. I would totally Great. be there. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see you there. <laughs> You'll be there with me. You'll be like right next to me. Oh, don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> so, <I'll>... <laughs> so, Ian, <laughs> used to start. thank you for being here. How can people find you? How, uh, where can I point uh, them towards? I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Ian Tix, I-A-N-T-I-X. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and uh, generally available uh, for a chat. Make um, sure that if you uh, connect with Ian on LinkedIn that you put a note, especially if you don't know oh, him. Yes. It's right there on his LinkedIn oh, profile. Yes. Don't. <laughs> oh, I get so fed up with people approaching me trying to, especially recruiters. It's just give it a round. Yes, guys, give it a rest. If I'm looking, I'll come and find you. Yes. And I'm not. <laughs> well, Ian, man, thanks for taking the time. Uh, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you, Dave. Once again, I want to thank my guest today, Ian Taylor from Big Dog Agency. As always, I'd love it if you check out my website. That's www.davewakeman.com where you can find my blog, find out what I'm up to, um, and connect with me. Uh, you can send me an email with any thoughts, ideas, questions, concerns, suggestions for guests, whatever you'd like to send me at my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter. That's at David Wakeman. Also, if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love it if you take a moment, visit Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. Oh, and or maybe both, leave a review. This stuff helps, okay? Um, Thank you again, and until next time, I'll see you soon. Take it easy.